Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Let's go to the beach. Beach. because I have a psychic connection to the music I have written. That's that's fair. Yeah. Hey, everybody. We are coming at you from San Diego, California. Yeah. So you have, in the past three months that you've been listening to this podcast, or you're just joining us, we have been recording from New York City, from Iowa City, and from San Diego. Yep. The life of a unemployed actor during a pandemic, I guess. So this will be our sunniest episode to date. For sure. I can't actually <laughs> promise that because um, we're recording in a closet, so I'm seeing none of the sunshine. <laughs> we at have the literally locked the doors to the beach. So, this is a. My grandparents bought this condo back in like the 70s, and it has been like a second home for me. So, we were like, we want to get the hell out of New York City during the election. So, we voted, and then we got the hell out of there, and we're going to hole up in the condo. Um, but for recording this, we have just shut all the doors and locked ourselves in a closet because yeah. that is the glamour of podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, welcome to our 20th episode. If you're <gasps> listening to this on the day that it drops, you are listening to this on November 3rd. And for the next hour or so, nothing important is happening today. Yeah, just listen. There is nothing that matters happening today except that we are going to read you a story and hopefully make you laugh a little bit. Make you laugh a little. But if you haven't voted, get in line and vote. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could be listening to this while you're in line to vote. Yeah, which we highly encourage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we're dropping this on a, a very important day in the America. The America? Uh, that's what I'm going to call it for now. There are, a, there, are, there are a few of them. But it's also another special day, which is it's uh, November, and we are dedicating November... To Movember. Yeah. So we've decided to uh, do a month long of our muse, Agatha Christie's Poirot detective novels for so y'all. So this will be fun. The month of November should be some good stories. Uh, and to play along with Movember, for those of you who don't know, Movember or its close relative, No Shave November, are two um, movements or organizations that... Um, get people to stop shaving for the month in an attempt to raise awareness uh, regarding particular men's health issues, um, especially uh, certain kinds of, of cancer. And the big one that Movember, which is Mustache November, is raising awareness for this year is men's mental health, uh, especially around the fact that three quarters of all suicides come from men. Um, this is largely because, uh, Western culture has, um, not encouraged men to be terribly clever when it comes to their own mental and emotional self-awareness and dealing with that. Uh, so during this month, I will be growing out my own mustache while we are reading stories from the most famous mustachioed detective ever. And, um, I'll go ahead and put a link in the, uh, the the episode description, 
but you can go to my Movember profile page and check out uh, Mustache Progress Picks. And if you want to donate a little money to the cause of men's mental health and preventing suicide, you can also do that there. Yep, and that's a really great cause this year because uh, uh, mental health issues are rising considering it's a global pandemic. And uh, I highly encourage you to reach out to your loved ones and let them know that you love them and you're not alone. So, uh, so we're going to give to a good cause and we're also going to get to hear um, some of our favorite stories that inspired this podcast. So mustachios and you can play along if you want send us your pictures of your mustache or your beard and i don't get to play along so um i might just find some like stick on mustaches to (laughs) support the cause you have mustache envy i have mustache envy um but speaking of mustaches i think we should just dive right in let's do it so as we have said, we will be reading all Agatha Christie, that badass woman, um, surfer girl. I guess it's appropriate that we're in San Diego. Uh, Do you love me? Do you, surfer girl? Surfer girl. Don't sue me, the Beach Boys. <laughs> I think they'll be cool with it. Um, it wasn't that long. Right? Yeah. That was parody. Think, that was under that, parody. I think that song was probably written for her anyway. I hope so. I hope people wrote <laughs> songs for her. So we will be reading, Ken is reading today, and you will be reading The Adventure of the Cheap Flat. Something I really <laughs> wish we could find. I know. I was like, this is just funny because I'm like, wow. I mean, they're in London, I'm guessing. I haven't read it, but... Uh, assuming it's somewhere in England, so probably London. And I was like, I want a cheap flat in New York City (laughs) or Or San Diego or London or anywhere. Um, So cool. So this one was published for the first time in 1923 in The Sketch, um, issue 1580 in London, May 9th. 1923. So that's that's the, that's the dates I got. Great. So basically, since we're going to be doing all Agatha Christie all month, I, I focused on Poirot in particular because we're doing it because of his mustache. Poirot fun facts. All right. Poirot fun facts. So Hercule Poirot is a fictional Belgian detective created by Agatha Christie. Uh, he is uh, her most famous and long-running character, um, appearing in 33 novels, two plays, and more than 50 short stories published between 1920 and 1975. So he has been around. He, he saw many. Yeah. Uh, so because it's been portrayed so many times, here are some famous actors that have portrayed her, uh, Mr. Poirot. We've got uh, John Moffat, Albert Finney, Ian Holm, Alfred Molina, Orson Welles. Huh. David Suchet, who's I arguably the long like the most famous one because he did the long running series. Mm-hmm. Most recently, Kenneth Branagh, um, in a very very good adaptation I'm of very much Murder of the that. Orient Express and uh, Death on the Nile is coming. Is up. coming and it looks beautiful. And John Malkovich. Oh, that yeah. version was weird. N- we watched it. Not. My favorite. It was not my favorite, but he did. It was John Malkovich. Yeah. 
<laughs> which is usually how I feel about John Malkovich things in general. <laughs> other great I'm actors. I'm like, that was interesting. Other great actors to have portrayed uh, Hercule Poirot include Campfire Classics co-host Ken Sandberg. Ken Sandberg. <laughs> Coming up. Uh, though, so Poirot's mustache is the trademark, which is why we've things. So that's the first thing people notice about him, and it is his pride and joy, as I say. So I got a lot of this information from uh, agathachristie.com. Uh, so if you want to check that out and a little bit from Wiki, but, uh, so Poirot made his debut, um, in the mysterious affair at Styles, and his mustache was described as very stiff and military. And this is because at the time Poirot was a refugee newly arrived from Belgium, Belgium, Belgian. He is Belgian and he he's from Belgium. Belgium. He's from Belgium. Um, he is not a waffle. And he was nearly penniless. So he didn't have the money to invest in grooming. But, of course, as he went on his uh, and became more established as a private detective and ar- most arguably, m- arguably the most famous, like, british Belgish detective. <laughs> Sorry, everyone from Belgium. <laughs> um, uh, by the early 30s, his facial hair had evolved from being stiff and military into magnificent luxurious, a a magnificent luxurious asset, which gained much comment from himself and other characters. (laughs) Uh, Other words to describe it are gigantic, immense, and amazing. So uh, by the time, in 1934, in uh, Murder on the Orient Express, he was described as a little man with an enormous mustache. Yep. So there you go. Um, so that is why we have chosen him for Movember. <laughs> By the end of his career, many people considered him a large mustache with a little man. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that's basically it. So he's supposed to be like 5'4 and like round and moustached. Which that's... is why Kenneth Branagh was not the greatest casting. But... but he looks pretty good and that mustache makes him look damn ridiculous. Yeah. So that's why when you see Poirot um, portrayed... Um, the mustache tends to be the first thing you notice. And I think uh, I was reading a little bit about Kenneth Branagh's um, reasoning for the ridiculousness of that mustache. And it was partially because he does not fit the character description of being a little round and short. So he wanted the mustache to be that much more ridiculous to make him look a little bit more ridiculous. Yeah. Um, No, that makes sense. Yeah. So... So we will give you more mustache facts as we go through the month and much more Poirot and Agatha Christie. But I thought that was a good start because I like it. we're doing this because of the mustache. So let's get on with this gigantic, immense, and amazing mustache story of All right. the cheap flat. Let's, let's do start it. Start the fire. The Adventure of the Cheap Flat by Agatha Christie. So far in the cases which I have recorded, Poirot's investigations have started from the central fact, whether murder or robbery, and have proceeded from thence by a process of logical deduction to the final triumphant unraveling. In the events I am now about to chronicle, a remarkable chain of circumstances led from the apparently trivial incidents which first attracted Poirot's attention to the sinister happenings which completed a most unusual case. Sinister. It's <laughs> a good word. It means left-handed. <laughs> Rude! 
Does it really? Yeah. Nuh-uh. Yeah. So I'm sinister? The, the word sinister comes from this, uh, 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 sinistra, um, or something like that, which is, yeah, it, it comes from, from the, the, like, Latin root of left-handed. Look I'm it up. I'm looking this shit up. I am left-handed. <laughs> so is my father. Sinister. Yeah, look up the etymology. Okay, so the like current definition is giving the impression that something harmful or evil is happening or will happen to of on or toward the left hand side. Rude. Yep. I mean, I am a redheaded left-handed person. I've said I, if you if you can if you can make it through me, you're going to make it. <laughs> yeah. You're a little sinister. I am very sinister. Yeah. All right. No, but like this, That's this amazing. The, the whole idea that left-handed people are are like of the devil or of witchcraft, it comes right down to where the word comes from. That's fucking fabulous. <laughs> I am a witch and even, I'm happy about it. Even the English language is against you. You know what? I'm against the English language. Clearly, if you <laughs> listen to that introduction. <laughs> if you've listened to any of this podcast. All right. To, to continue with this sinister tale. I had been spending the evening with an old friend of mine, Gerald Parker. There had been perhaps about half a dozen people there besides my host and myself, and the talk fell, as it was bound to do sooner or later, wherever Parker found himself, on the subject of house hunting in London. (laughs) Houses and flats were Parker's special hobby. Since the end of the war, he had occupied at least half a dozen different flats and maisonettes. 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 I'm assuming... Cute word for little house, townhouse. Like a pied-a-terre kind of situation. No sooner was he settled anywhere than he would light unexpectedly upon a new find and would forthwith depart bag and baggage. (laughs) So he's a, like a house flipper, but he doesn't flip them. But he doesn't he flip just them. Gets he just, bored. Yeah. He uh, he has commitment issues, but instead of bouncing from girl to girl, he bounces from house to house. Nice. You know, they have less feelings, that's for sure. Unless they're haunted. I hope they're haunted. I hope that's what this is about. <laughs> His moves were nearly always accomplished at a slight pecuniary gain. Pecuniary? I assume it has to do with money. Pecuniary. An adjective relating to or consisting of money. Yep, that's it. (laughs) Great. So, once again, we're just dealing with archaic or slightly douchey language. It's just pretty. (laughs) His moves were nearly always accomplished at a slight financial gain. For he had a shrewd business head, but it was sheer love of the sport that actuated him and not a desire to make money at it. We listened to Parker for some time with the respect of the novice for the expert. Then it was our turn, and a perfect babble of tongues was let loose. Finally, the floor was left to Mrs. Robinson, a charming little bride who was there with her husband. I had never met them before, as Robinson was only recently acquaintance of Parker's. Talking of flats, she said, have you heard of our piece of luck, Mr. Parker? We've got a flat at last, in Montague Mansions. Well, said Parker, I've always said there are plenty of flats, at a price. 
Yes, but this isn't at a price. It's dirt cheap. Eighty pounds a year. What? <laughs> but, but Montague Mansions is just off Knightsbridge, isn't it? Big handsome building? Or are you talking of a poor relation of the same name stuck in the slums somewhere? He's so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the Knightsbridge one. That's what makes it so wonderful. <laughs> wonderful is the word. It's a blinking miracle. But there must be a catch somewhere. Big premium, I suppose? No premium. No pre... Oh, hold my head, somebody, <laughs> groaned Parker. <laughs> I missed out. No. <laughs> but we've got to buy the furniture, continued Mrs. Robinson. Ah, Parker bristled up. I knew there was a catch. For fifty pounds, and it's beautifully furnished. I give it up, said Parker. The present occupants must be lunatics with a taste for philanthropy. Mrs. Robinson was looking a little troubled. A little pucker appeared between her dainty brows. It is queer, isn't it? You don't think that... That the place is haunted. haunted. Ah, yay! <laughs> oh my god! I hope I don't. I'm gonna guess that's not what it is, but I love that we jumped to that conclusion before we yeah. even got there. <clears throat> Why else would there be a cheap apartment anywhere in like a metropolis? It's something's got to be wrong. It's like when you see that Craigslist ad. That's just too good to be true. That's because it's too good to be true. And it's a murder house. Never heard of a haunted flat, declared Parker decisively. No. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson appeared far from convinced. <laughs> I like her no. No. Well, it's N-O hyphen O. I know. <laughs> First of all, it's like the 1900s. He's never heard of a haunted apartment. He needs to get out more. He needs to stop moving and like read a book. Well, like, usually it's houses that are haunted, though, not apartments. Ah, I've lived in some straight-up haunted apartments for show. <laughs> or Go maybe on, this Mrs. guy just lives under a rock. Mrs. Robinson. No. Mrs. Robinson appeared far from convinced. But there were several things about it all that struck me as, well, queer. For instance, I suggested... Ah, said Parker, our criminal expert's attention is aroused. Unburden yourself to him, Mrs. Robinson. Hastings is a great unraveler of mysteries. <laughs> I laughed, embarrassed, but not wholly displeased with the role thrust upon me. Oh, not really queer, Captain Hastings, but when we went to the agents, Stosser and Paul... We hadn't tried them before, because they only have the expensive Mayfair flats, but we thought at any rate it would do no harm. Everything they offered us was four and five hundred a year, or else huge premiums, and then, just as we were going, they mentioned that they had a flat at eighty, but that they doubted if it would be any good our going there. 
because it had been on their books some time, and they had sent so many people to see it that it was almost sure to be taken, snapped up, as the clerk put it. Only people were so tiresome in not letting them know, and then they went on sending, and people get annoyed at being sent to a place that had perhaps been let some time. Mrs. Robinson paused for some much-needed breath, and then continued. <laughs> oh, so that was all... Was that, like, all really... Oh, fun? Lord, no, that was all one sentence. Oh, my God! <clears throat> so, if I may do a retake... I want to hear it. Oh, not really queer, Captain Hastings, but when we went to the agents, Stosser and Paul, we hadn't tried them before because they only had the expensive Mayfair flats, but we thought at any rate it could do no harm. Everything they offered us was four and five hundred a year, or else huge premiums, and then just as we were going, they mentioned that they had a flat at eighty, but that... Shit, I can't make it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a long sentence. They mentioned they had a flat at 80, but that they doubted it would be any good our going there because it had been on their books some time and they had sent so many people to see it that it was almost sure to be taken, snapped up, as the clerk put it, only people were so tiresome in not letting them know, and then they went on sending... (sighs) And people get annoyed at being sent to a place that had perhaps been let some time. Oh my God! All that... one sentence. And she's wearing a corset. <laughs> what a what a queen. <laughs> I, that's that actually helps with breast support. Yes, queen. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson paused for some much needed breath and then continued. We thanked him and said that we quite understood it would probably be no good, but that we should like an order all the same, just in case. And we went there straight away in a taxi, for, after all, we never know. Number four was on the second floor, and just as we were waiting for the lift, Elsie Ferguson, she's a friend of mine, Captain Hastings, and they are looking for a flat, too, came hurrying down the stairs. "'Ahead of you for once, dear,' she said, "'but it's no good, it's already let.' That seemed to finish it, but, well, as John said, the place was very cheap. We could afford to give more, and perhaps if we offered a premium, a horrid thing to do, of course, I feel quite ashamed of telling you, but you know what flat hunting is. <laughs> I ass- Bid- Bidding war. It's a bidding war. <clears throat> I assured her that I was well aware that in the struggle for house room, the baser side of human nature frequently triumphed over the higher, and that the well-known rule of dog-eat-dog always applied. (laughs) So we went up, and would you believe it, the flat wasn't let at all. We were shown over it by the maid, and then we saw the mistress, and the thing was settled then and there, immediate possession, and fifty pounds for the furniture. We signed the agreement next day, and we are to move in tomorrow. Why'd her bitch friend tell her that it is lit? <laughs> Mrs. Robinson paused triumphantly. And what about Mrs. Ferguson? <laughs> asked Parker. Let's have your deductions, Hastings. Obvious, my dear Watson, I quoted lightly. <laughs> That's the first time they have ever referenced Holmes. Like That's straight up. Like straight up reference. That's yep. fun. Obvious, my dear Watson, I quoted lightly. She went to the wrong flat. 
Oh, Captain Hastings, how clever of you, cried Mrs. Robinson admiringly. I rather wished Poirot had been there. Sometimes I have the feeling that he rather underestimates my capabilities. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was rather amusing, and I propounded the thing as a mock problem to Poirot on the following morning. He seemed interested and questioned me rather narrowly as to the rents of flats in various localities. A curious story. Yay, he appears! He said thoughtfully. Excuse me, Estings, I must take a short stroll. When he returned, about an hour later, his eyes were gleaming with a peculiar excitement. He laid his stick on the table and brushed the nap of his hat with a, his usual tender care before he spoke. It is as well, mon ami, that we have no affairs of moment on hand. We can devote ourselves only to the present investigation. What investigation are you talking about? The remarkable cheapness of your friend Mrs. Robinson's new flat. Poirot, you are not serious. I am most serious. Figure to yourself, my friend, that the real rent of those flats is 350 pounds. I have just ascertained that from the landlord's agent. And yet, this particular flat is being sublet at 80 pounds. Why? There must be something wrong with it. Perhaps it's haunted, as Ghost. Mrs. Robinson suggested. <laughs> Poirot shook his head in a dissatisfied Maybe manner. it's haunted by rats. <laughs> <laughs> then again, how curious it is that her friend tells her the flat is let. And when she goes up, behold, it is not so at all. But surely you agree with me that the other woman must have gone to the wrong flat. That is the only possible solution. Uh, you may or may not be right on that point, Hastings. The fact still remains that numerous other applicants were sent to see it, and yet, in spite of its remarkable cheapness, it was still in the market when Mrs. Robinson arrived. Uh, that shows that there must be something wrong about it. Mrs. Robinson did not seem to notice anything amiss. Very curious, is it not? Maybe she's really stupid. Did she impress you as being a truthful woman, Hastings? Uh, she was a delightful creature. Evidemment. Since she renders you incapable of replying to my question. Describe her to me, then. Uh-oh. Well, she's tall and fair. Her hair is really a beautiful shade of auburn. Oh, All no! <laughs> oh, no! She's a redhead! Oh, no! Always you have had a pension for auburn air, <laughs> murmured Poirot. Every damn story... Every story Hastings is, like, all about the redheads. All about the redheads. I wonder if she's left-handed, too. <laughs> Probably an actress, too. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Always you have had a passion for Auburn air, murmured Poirot, but continue. Uh, blue eyes and a very nice complexion and... Well, that's all, I think, I concluded lamely. And her husband... Oh, uh, 
he's quite a nice fellow. Nothing startling. Dark or fair? Um, I don't know. Betwixt and between, and just an ordinary sort of face. Poirot nodded. Yes, there are hundreds of these average men. And anyway, you bring more sympathy and appreciation to your description of women. Do you know anything about these people? Does Parker know them well? He just basically said, All right, Hastings, so... I know, I know, you pay more attention to the ladies. You're very observant about the redheads, and you don't seem to notice anything else. Nope. So your, your uh, deduction... Uh, Sends, tends to be, uh, like, centered around pretty girls. Yep. So you're a dude. Good job. <laughs> He's a bro. You you look with your eyes, not with your other parts. Well, Hastings looks with his <laughs> other parts, and Poirot's like, you need to observe all. <laughs> yep. Do you know anything of these people? Does Parker know them well? Uh, they are just recent acquaintances, I believe, but surely, Poirot, you don't think for an instant Poirot raised his hand. To do some more, mon ami. Have I said that I think anything? All I say is, it is a curious story, and there is nothing to throw light upon it except perhaps the lady's name. Eh, Hastings? Her name is Stella. I said stiffly, but I don't see Poirot interrupted me with a tremendous chuckle. Something seemed to be amusing him vastly. And Stella means a star, does it not? Famous. What on earth? And stars give light. Voila, calm yourself, Hastings. Do not put on that air of injured dignity. Come, we will go to Montague Mansions and make a few inquiries. <laughs> He's like, stop, stop crying. You didn't see you, it. Come on. You this, this is our thing. Get Come your on. backpack. Follow me. I'll teach you how to do the thing. Get the lady out of your head. <laughs> Get the redhead out of your head. I accompanied him nothing loath. The mansions were a handsome block of buildings in excellent repair. A uniformed porter was sunning himself on the threshold, and it was to him that Poirot addressed himself. Pardon, but would you tell me if uh, Mr. and Mrs. Robinson reside here? The porter was a man of few words, and apparently of a sour or suspicious disposition. He hardly looked at us, and grunted out, Number four, second floor. <laughs> I thank you. Uh, can you tell me how long they have been here? Six months. <gasps> I started forward in amazement, conscious as I did so of Poirot's malicious grin. Oh, damn! They shady! Hmm. Are they, like, stealing people? Like, what are they doing? I wonder what they're doing. Like, why? That's not where I expected this to go. No. What? That is not where I expected this to go. Um, okay. So, what they're doing is they are running uh, a gambling house, narcotics, and prostitution ring out of their flat... 
and she goes around and drops these hints that people should come check out the flat and then because it's cheap and then they um they convince them to come gamble and they take all their money and then they kidnap them and force them into either prostitution or drug smuggling so it's a it's a sex slave ring <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> yeah, this uh, is actually an episode of, uh, of Law and Order Law SVU. Law and SVU. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That's my that's my wild speculation at this point, based on absolutely okay. nothing. All right. All right. Continue. I am I am intrigued, Poirot. Six months. I started forward in amazement, conscious as I did so of Poirot's malicious grin. Impossible! I cried. You must be making a mistake. Six months. Are you sure? The lady, I mean, is tall and fair with reddish gold hair and... That, sir, said the porter. Come in the Michaelmas quarter, they did, just six months ago. He appeared to lose interest in us and <laughs> retreated slowly up the hall. He's like, damn it, I, I told you, Poirot six months. Outside. He's like, come on, come on. That's, he's, uh... In, in, in Law and the... Order SVU, he's the under five. He's an under that five. Is literally there to drop information and peace out. <laughs> Number four, second floor. Six months. Six months. That's her. Come in the Michaelmas quarter they did just six months ago. And then he peaced four out. Lines, four and lines. Four lines. See? <laughs> Agatha Christie created the under five. <laughs> he appeared to lose interest in us and retreated slowly up the hall. I followed Poirot outside. Eh bien, stings. My friend demanded slyly, Are you so sure now that the delightful woman always speaks the truth? I did not reply. <laughs> <laughs> that sinister redhead. Fucking redheads. Every time. <laughs> Poirot had steered his way into Brompton Road before I asked him what he was going to do and where we were going. To the house agents, Hastings, I have a great desire to have a flat in Montague Mansions. If I am not mistaken, several interesting things will take place there before long. We were fortunate in our quest. Number eight on the fourth floor was to be let furnished at ten guineas a week. Poirot promptly took it for a month. Outside in the street again, he silenced my protests. Damn, he just moved in? He's like, I'll, I'm going to move in and I'm going to observe this shit. But I make money nowadays. Why should I not indulge in a whim? <laughs> By the way, Hastings, have you a revolver? Uh, yes. Somewhere, I answered, slightly thrilled. Do you think that you will need it? It is quite possible. The idea pleases you, I see. Always the spectacular and romantic appeals to you. I think Hastings is, in fact, an American. He's into pretty redheads and guns. <laughs> yep. The following day saw us installed in our temporary home. The flat was pleasantly furnished. It occupied the same position in the building as that of the Robinsons, but two floors higher. The day after our installation was a Sunday. In the afternoon, Poirot left the front door ajar and summoned me hastily as a bang reverted from somewhere below. 
Look over the banisters. Are those your friends? No, do not let them see you. I craned my neck over the staircase. That's them, I declared in an ungrammatical whisper. Good. Wait a while. About half an hour later, a young woman emerged in brilliant and varied clothing. With a sigh of satisfaction, Poirot tiptoed back into the flat. C'est ça. After the master and mistress, the maid. The flat should now be empty. Uh-oh. All right. They're going to sneak in. What? what? They're making, like, bathtub gin in there. It's like Prohibition times. Prohibition <laughs> was an American thing, I know. Because <laughs> Americans are stupid sometimes. Americans are bad at drinking. <laughs> the British are like, we got this. What are we going to do? I asked uneasily. Poirot had trotted briskly into the scullery and was hauling at the rope of a coal lift. We are about to descend after the method of the dustbins, he explained cheerfully. No one will observe us. The Sunday concert, the Sunday afternoon out, and finally the Sunday nap after the Sunday dinner of England. The roast beef. All these will distract attention from the doings of Hercule Poirot. <laughs> no one will Come, see me, because they are friend. all fat from their moustache, uh, their, uh, their uh, roast beefing. And he twirled his moustache. He did? <laughs> no. Oh. Aww. <laughs> no, that, that would be, that would be, that would make him the bad guy, and I don't think he's the bad guy in this. He doesn't twirl his moustache. Well, he does twirl his, no, he. He definitely pets he it. He smooths yeah. his moustache. He, he, he. He pets it. He sort of tweaks it up and he takes care it of it. And, you know. It's his pet. I wonder if he's allergic to cats, and that's why he grows a mustache. What? So he has something to pet. <laughs> or maybe his mustache actually is his pet cat. And the reason it was so short and neat and trim when he first came to the country so baby. is because it was a kitten. And as it gets older, it gets bigger and bigger and more luxurious. That is the most disturbing. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay, read the book. <laughs> if you're still with us, thank you. <laughs> All these will distract attention from the doings of Hercule Poirot. Come, my friend. He stepped into a rough wooden contrivance, and I followed him gingerly. <laughs> are, Ginger. Are we going to break into the flat? I asked dubiously. Damn right. Poirot's answer was not too reassuring. <laughs> uh, not precisely today, he replied. Pulling on the rope, we descended slowly till we reached the second floor. Poirot uttered an exclamation of satisfaction as he perceived that the wooden door into the scullery was open. You observe, never do they bolt these doors in the daytime, and yet anyone could mount or descend as we have done. At night, yes, though not always then, and it is against that that we are going to make provision. 
He had drawn some tools from his pockets as he spoke, and at once set deftly to work, his object being to arrange the bolt so that it could be pulled back from the lift. The operation only occupied about three minutes. Then Poirot returned the tools to his pocket, and we reascended once more to our own domain. They just, like, rigged the elevator they, and, so like, propped the door they, open. They rigged the, um, the, the, the dumbwaiter, yeah. yeah. essentially, so that they could open the door to the second floor flat from the ins from inside the the, the dumb dumb waiter. waiter like where how they delivered like yeah stuff to them sneaky sneaky <clears throat> on monday poirot was out all day but when he returned in the evening he flung himself into his chair with a sigh of satisfaction Hastings, shall i recount to you a little history a story after your own art and which will remind you of your favorite cinema Go ahead, I laughed. <laughs> I presume that it is a true story, not one of your efforts of fancy. It is true enough. Inspector Jap of Scotland Yard will vouch for its accuracy, since it was through his kind offices that it came to my ears. Listen, Hastings. A little over six months ago, some important naval plans were stolen from an American government department. They showed the position of some of the most important harbor defenses and would be worth a considerable sum to any foreign government, that of Japan, for example. Suspicion for... Ooh, that's creepy. What? Well, that this story is written... 20 years ahead of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And, yeah. and apparently it hinges on stolen naval plans that would be of interest to, to Japan. Japan. Agatha Christie's a freaking psycho. Uh, psycho? psycho. <laughs> <laughs> Psychic is the word I was looking for, but... Um, well, she may be both. Y you can be both. Um, <laughs> Psycho-psychic? Psycho-psychic. Psychologist. Psycho-psychic. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Uh, where was I? Uh, Japan. Yes, that of Japan, for example. Suspicion fell upon a young man named Luigi Veldarno, an Italian by birth. In Wait, case, that guy's name is not... <laughs> in case you could not tell that he was Italian from the name Luigi Wait, Veldarno. It's like the most Italian name that ever Italian. He and his brother Mario... From we're living, Russia. We're living in America working as plumbers when a giant gorilla <laughs> stole Mario's girlfriend. They had to eat all the mushrooms <laughs> to retrieve her. Do you think the entire game of Mario takes place in the hallucinogenic mushroom-induced haze that is M Mario and Luigi's like evening entertainment? Like none of that actually happened. They're just sitting just around tripping. eating mushrooms. Yeah, that could that that absolutely could happen. We should contact uh, the creators of the game and see if they just were like, you know what happens when I take mushrooms? Let's make a game I, out of it. I bang my heads into bricks and get gold. <laughs> and I jump on turtles. 
I steal a princess from a fucking dragon. <laughs> and then I get a cart and I race around in a track. Sometimes I just teach kids how to paint. <laughs> That's it. Sometimes I teach kids how to paint. <laughs> Mario, Mario paint. paint. Mario art. Isn't it Mario art? I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, I love that one. You can make weird <laughs> songs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you made those weird songs with like the... <laughs> That's we dumb. should we should download Mario Paint or Mario Art and do our theme song with the fucking like the music thing. Oh, I'm on board. <laughs> we can have, I'm have to weird. Do that. There's a cat sound. It's like Meow. Oh no. <laughs> Suspicion <laughs> fell upon a young man named Luigi Valdarno, an Italian by birth, who was employed in a minor capacity in the department and who was missing at the same time as the papers. Whether Luigi Valdarno was the thief or not, he was found two days later on the east side of New York, shot dead. The papers were not on him. Now, for some time past, Luigi Valdarno had been going out with a Miss Elsa Hart, a young concert singer who had recently appeared and who lived with a brother in an apartment in Washington. Nothing was known of the antecedents of Miss Elsa Hart, and she disappeared suddenly about the time of Valdarno's death. Black Widow. <laughs> well, once again, we're dealing with a... Actress. Performer. A performer. <laughs> All performers are murderers. I mean, that's true. <laughs> All performers are FBI, like, secret agents. That'd be fun. FBI, if you're listening, we're unemployed at the moment, and uh, I want to be an international spy. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to go CIA. Yeah. Um, I suppose... I uh, cool wigs. I love wigs. I suppose MI6, I, I'd be cool with that, too. MI6 is... Th it's what James Bond is oh, part yeah. of. I, I'd, go, I'd go work British secret intelligence. I'll, I'll do it all, as long as I get to wear cool costumes. Not, not super into joining KGB. No. Mostly because it's really cold. Yeah, I don't like I don't like, I don't like Russian winters. Yeah, send no, me to the warm places. Much. Yeah. Nothing was known of the antecedents of Miss Elsa Hart. Then she disappeared suddenly about the time of Valdarno's death. There are reasons for believing that she was, in reality, an accomplished international spy. Oh my god! <laughs> I love when we, like, they've done it, like, three times during this story. Yep. Oh my god. See? <clears throat> actresses are spies. I don't, I don't trust actresses. Don't or actors. They're all sneaky spies. Sneaky? Well, we're really good at pretending to be other people. Yeah. So maybe we should, maybe we, you know, since theater's not going to be back for about a year, maybe we should look into um, um, undercover spy agencies. Yeah, could do that. Or we could just start building our own uh, like, resume. Like, just start spying on people. <laughs> I think that's illegal. <laughs> what, I it's... don't think, I mean, we could start like a PI for, like thing. No, no, I just mean for practice. Like, like oh, for got, practice? Yeah, for practice. Like, we've got, we've got like, binoculars and a telescope here. We can just spy <laughs> on people on the boardwalk. <laughs> just, like, decipher what, everything about them just as they walk by the boardwalk. Be yeah. like, that person comes from a broken home in Venice, California, 
and currently works as a programmer of uh, computer games and uh, just broke up with their partner. Well, sure, that, or <laughs> we could um, use That's the telescope to uh, just, like, zoom in on their credit cards when they pay for stuff. <laughs> now, that is illegal. Only if, if we use, use it for anything. That's, that's very true. <laughs> if we don't use it for anything, then it's just practice. I don't condone any of this. I would just like to uh, put that out there. That Do we have to punch in a waiver? Campfire Classics does not condone <laughs> identity theft. I guess only if somebody does it and then just like, <laughs> but my podcast told me it was fine. <laughs> I'm training to be an international spy. No, 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 no. To be clear, we are not... Rec- Listener, we are not recommending that you train to be an international spy. We're letting you know we are training. We're doing it. <laughs> We're just letting you in on the secret. Because that's what spies do. They tell so all their secrets to if you strangers. Have, so if you have anyone you would like us to spy on, just send us their picture and their social security Oh my number. god, get out. Get. <laughs> You're cut off. You need more coffee. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> She's a spy, an international spy. Yes, uh, there are reasons. Uh, yes, there are reasons for believing that she was in reality an accomplished international spy who has done much nefarious work under various mm-hmm. aliases. The American Secret Service, while doing their best to trace her, also kept an eye upon certain sig- insignificant Japanese gentlemen living in Washington. And they felt pretty certain that when Elsa Hart had covered her tracks sufficiently, she would approach the gentleman in question. One of them left suddenly for England a fortnight ago. On the face of it, therefore, it would seem that Elsa Hart is in England. Poirot paused, then added softly, The official description of Elsa Hart is eight, five foot seven, eyes blue. Air, auburn, fair complexion, nose straight, no special distinguishing marks. <gasps> Mrs. Robinson, I gasped. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson, are you, are you coming on to me? Well, there is a chance of it, anyhow, amended Poirot. Also, I learned that a swarthy man, a foreigner of some kind, is inquiring about the occupants of number four only this morning. Therefore, mon ami, I fear that you must forswear your beauty sleep tonight and join me in my all-night vigil in that flat below, armed with that excellent revolver of yours. Oh, damn! Bien entendu. Rather, I cried with enthusiasm, when shall we start? (laughs) Yay! The hour of midnight is both solemn and suitable, I fancy. Nothing is likely to occur before then. Oh. So, this is the ghosting hour. It is the witching hour. At twelve o'clock precisely, we crept cautiously into the coal lift and lowered ourselves to the second floor. Under Poirot's manipulation, the wooden door quickly swung inward, and we climbed into the flat. From the scullery, we passed into the kitchen, where we established ourselves comfortably in two chairs with the door into the hall ajar. Now we have but to wait, 
said Poirot, contentedly closing his eyes. To me, the waiting appeared endless. <laughs> I was terrified of going to sleep. Just when it seemed to me that I had been there about eight hours, and had, as I found out afterward, in reality been exactly one hour and twenty minutes, <laughs> a faint scratching sound came to my ears. I told you, rats. Poirot's hand touched my... This whole time has been nothing but rats. They worked themselves up into this tizzy over, like, a foreign actress turned super spy and a dead Italian and, like, Japanese espionage and all this crap. It's like, no, the apartment has rats, dude. Chill. (laughs) That's it. That's all it is. (laughs) Poirot's hand touched me. I rose. Wow. It was Poirot, not the redhead, dude. Maybe maybe he dozed off and he was having a very exciting dream about the redhead. And so when something touched him, it, he rose. <laughs> Poirot's hand touched mine. I, I rose. Was. And together we moved carefully in the direction of the hall. The noise came from there. Poirot placed his lips to my ears. Oh, getting dirty. Outside the front door. They're cutting out the lock. When I give the word, not before. Fall upon him from behind and hold him fast. Be careful. You will have a knife. Also, if you're still risen, (laughs) poke that into his back and he'll think you have a knife. (laughs) Is that a gun or are you just happy to see me? Don't ask questions. Not you. (laughs) It's Elsa. A.K.A. Mrs. Robinson. Cuckoo-cachoo. Cuckoo-cachoo. Presently, there was a rending sound, and a little circle of light appeared through the door. It was extinguished immediately, and then the door was slowly opened. Poirot and I flattened ourselves against the wall. I heard a man's breathing as he passed us. Then he flashed on his torch, and as he did so, Poirot hissed in my ear, Allez! We sprang together. Poirot, with a quick movement, enveloped the intruder's head with a light woolen scarf whilst I pinioned his arms. Woohoo! The whole affair was quick and noiseless. I twisted a dagger from his hand, and as Poirot brought down the scarf from his eyes whilst keeping it wound tightly round his mouth, I jerked up my revolver where he could see it and understand that resistance was useless. As he ceased to struggle, Poirot put his mouth close to his ear and began to whisper rapidly. Oh. After a minute, the man nodded. Then, enjoining silence with a movement of the hand, Poirot led the way out of the flat and down the stairs. Our captive followed, and I brought up the rear with the revolver. When we were out in the street, Poirot turned to me. There is a taxi waiting around the corner. Give me the revolver. We shall not need it now. What? But if this fellow tries to escape, Poirot smiled. He will not. I returned in a minute with the waiting taxi. The scarf had been unwound from the stranger's face, and I gave a start of surprise. He's not Japanese, I ejaculated in a whisper to Poirot. Oh my god! Well, 
Well, I mean, he has been like he's he has been, been risen for quite some he's, time. He's been risen since they were upstairs. He was probably ready to go at a soft breeze. And then he tackled the man, and then he's holding his revolver, and then he, you know, he goes, he's not Japanese, and blah. <laughs> oh no. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad he got that out of the way. <laughs> All right, so so Hastings has ejaculated. He's not Japanese, I ejaculated in a whisper to Poirot. <laughs> Observation was always your strong point, Hastings. <laughs> Nothing escapes you. No, the man is not Japanese, he is Italian. <laughs> Poirot's such a dick. Yeah, he's like, good job, dumbass. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. Now go clean yourself oh, up. This clean. is embarrassing. <laughs> we got into the taxi, and Poirot gave the driver an address in St. John's Wood. I was, by now, completely fogged. <laughs> I did not like to ask Poirot where we were going in front of our captive, and strove in vain to obtain some light upon the proceedings. We alighted at the door of a small house standing back from the road. A returning wayfarer, slightly drunk, was lurching along the pavement and almost collided with Poirot, who said something sharply to him which I did not catch. All three of us went up the steps of the house. Poirot rang the bell and motioned us to stand a little aside. There was no answer, and he rang again, and then seized the knocker, which he plied for some minutes vigorously. The light appeared suddenly above the fanlight, and the door opened cautiously a little way. "'What the devil do you want?' a man's voice demanded harshly. "'I want the doctor. My wife is taken ill.' "'There's no doctor here.' The man prepared to shut the door, but Poirot thrust his foot in adroitly. He became suddenly a perfect caricature of an infuriated Frenchman." What you say, there is no doctor. I will have the law of you. You must come. I will stay here and ring and knock all night. My dear sir. Well. The door was open again. The man, clad in a dressing gown and slippers, stepped forward to pacify Poirot with an uneasy glance around. I will call the police. Poirot prepared to descend the steps. No, don't do that for heaven's sake. The man dashed after him. With a neat push, Poirot sent him staggering down the steps. What? In another minute, all three of us were inside the door, and it was pushed to and bolted. Oh my god! So <laughs> Poirot just kicked this guy in the middle of the night, got him to answer the door, got him to come outside, kicked his ass down the stairs, and then went in this guy's house and locked him outside. Uh, I think that this is technically... Uh, assault and battery and breaking and entering. Yeah. Good job, Poirot. Poirot's kicking ass. Yeah. Like, he's usually the observer. He's just, he's been doing his ninja training, yeah. and he's like, I'm gonna <laughs> kick some ass he's, in this one. He's been going to the local uh, American Ninja Warrior gym yep. and <laughs> he's learning like, how to kick butt. He's like, I'm gonna bring this pistol, but I don't need it, because I'm gonna kick your ass. Hastings, uh, you take this revolver. My fists are registered weapons. <laughs> Check out these guns. <laughs> uh, did you get your tickets? To the, to gun, the gun show. show. 
I'm not named Hercule for nothing. <laughs> Kiss the bicep. Kiss the bicep. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, in here. Except it'd be more like, Quick, in here. Oh, God, no. Don't go there. <laughs> Quick, in here. Poirot led the way into the nearest room, switching on the light as he did so. And you, behind the curtain. Si, signor, <laughs> said the uh, Italian and slid rapidly behind the full folds of rose-colored velvet which draped the embrasure of the window. Not a minute too soon. Just as he disappeared from view, a woman rushed into the room. She was tall, with reddish hair, and held a scarlet kimono around her slender form. "'Where is my husband?' she cried, with a quick, frightened glance. "'Who are you?' Poirot stepped forward with a bow. "'It is to be hoped that your husband will not suffer from a chill.' I observed that he had slippers on his feet and that his dressing gown was a warm one. <laughs> Who are you? What are you doing in my house? What the fuck's going on? It is true that none of us have the pleasure of your acquaintance, madame. It is especially to be regretted as one of our number has come specially from New York in order to meet you. The curtains parted, and the Italian stepped out. To my horror, I observed that he was brandishing my revolver, which Poirot must doubtless have put down through inadvertence in the cab. The woman gave a piercing scream and turned to fly, but Poirot was standing in front of the closed door. Let me by, she shrieked. He will murder me. Ooh, ah, uh, shit. I have to come up with an Italian accent real quick. Ooh. Ooh, uh, who was it that croaked Luigi Veldarno? Something like that. <laughs> Sorry. It's a pizza pie. Who was it that croaked Luigi Veldarno? Asked the Italian hoarsely, brandishing a weapon and sweeping each one of us with it. We dared not move. My God, Poirot, this is awful. Uh, what shall we do? I cried. You will oblige me by refraining from talking so much, Hastings. I can assure you that our friend will not shoot until I give the word. Are you sure of that, eh? Said the Italian, leering unpleasantly. It was more than I was, but the woman turned to Poirot like a flash. What is it you want? Poirot bowed. I do not think it is necessary to insult Miss Elsa Hart's intelligence by telling her. With a swift movement, the woman snatched up a big black velvet cat, which <laughs> served as a cover for the telephone. What? With a swift movement, the woman snatched up a big black velvet cat, which served as a cover for the telephone. They are stitched in the lining of that. Oh. Clever murmured Poirot appreciatively. He stood aside from the door. Good evening, madame. I will detain your friend from New York whilst you make your getaway. What a fool, roared the big Italian. 
and raising the revolver, he fired point-blank at the woman's retreating figure just as I flung myself upon him. But the weapon clicked harmlessly, <laughs> and Poirot's voice rose in mild reproof. Never will you trust your old friend, Hastings. I do not care for my friends to carry loaded pistols about with them, and never would I permit a mere acquaintance to do so. No, no, mon ami. <laughs> this to the Italian, who was swearing hoarsely. Poirot continued to address him in a mild tone of reproof. See now what I have done for you. I have saved you from being hanged. And do not think that our beautiful lady will escape. No, no. The house is watched, back and front. Straight into the arms of the police they will go. Is not that a beautiful and consoling thought? Yes. Uh, you may leave the room now, but be careful. Be very careful. I... Ah, he is gone. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he gone. Bye. And my friend Hastings looks at me with eyes of reproach. But it's all so simple. It was clear from the first that out of several hundred, probably, applicants for number four Montague mansions, only the Robinsons were considered suitable. Why? What was there that singled them out from the rest? At practically a glance? Their appearance? Possibly, but it was not so unusual. Their name, then. But there's nothing unusual about the name of Robinson, I cried. It's quite a common name. Ah, sapristi, but exactly. That was the point. Elsa Hart and her husband, or brother, or whatever he really is... <laughs> Come from New York and take a flat in the name of Mr. and Mrs. Robinson. Suddenly, they learn that one of these secret societies, the Mafia or the Camorra, to which doubtless Luigi Valdarno belonged, is on their track. What did they do? They hit on a scheme of transparent simplicity. Evidently, they knew that their pursuers were not personally acquainted with either of them. What then can be simpler? They offer the flat an absurdly low rental. Of the thousands of young couples in London looking for flats, there cannot fail to be several Robinsons. It is only a matter of waiting. If you will look at the name of Robinson in the telephone directory, you will realize that fair-haired Mrs. Robinson was pretty sure to come along sooner or later. Then what will happen? The Avenger arrives. He knows the name. He knows the address. He strikes. All is over. Vengeance is satisfied, and Miss Elsa Hart is escaped by the skin of her teeth once more. By the way, Hastings, uh, you must present me to the real Mrs. Robinson, that delightful and truthful creature. <laughs> what will they think when they find their flat has been broken into? We must hurry back. Ah, that sounds like Jap and his friends arriving. A mighty tattoo sounded on the knocker. <laughs> 
How do you know this address? I asked as I followed Poirot out into the hall. Oh, of course. You had the first Mrs. Robinson followed when she left the other flat. A la bonne heure, Hastings. Use <laughs> you your gray cells. boner? <laughs> <laughs> ah, the boner, Hastings. <laughs> I follow the redhead just as you do. No. A la bonne heure. Ah. Uh, oh, the good oh, hour. The good, yeah. Um, or in this case, at last, Hastings. Yeah. You use your little gray cells at last. <laughs> now, for a little surprise for Inspector Jap. Softly unbolting the door, he stuck the cat's head round the edge and ejaculated a piercing. <laughs> Yep. That's the first, and he ejaculated while sounding like a screaming cat. He, he, he ejaculated um, while holding a stuffed cat. <laughs> you know, I guess everyone's got their thing. He's a furry. <laughs> no judgment, y'all. No judgment. And we were talking about how he has a kitty on his face earlier. Yep. <laughs> Uh-oh. The Scotland Yard inspector, who was standing outside with another man, jumped in spite of himself. <laughs> oh, it's only Monsieur Poirot at one of his little jokes, he exclaimed, <laughs> as Poirot's head followed that of the cat. Let us in, Monsieur. You have our friends safe and sound? Yes, we've got the birds all right. But they hadn't got the goods with them. Ah, I see. So you come in search. Well, I am about to depart with Hastings, but I should like to give you a little lecture about the history and habits of the domestic cat. <laughs> For the Lord's sake, have you gone completely balmy? The cat, declaimed Poirot, <laughs> was worshipped by the ancient Egyptians. It is still regarded as a symbol of good luck if a black cat crosses your path. This cat crossed your path tonight, Jap. To speak of the interior of any animal or any person is not, I know, considered polite in England. But the interior of this cat is perfectly delicate. I refer to the lining. <laughs> With a sudden grunt, the second man seized the cat from Poirot's hand. Oh, I forgot to introduce you, said Jap. Monsieur Poirot, this is Mr. Burt of the United States Secret Service. Oh, he's, yeah. <laughs> the American's trained fingers felt for what he was looking for. <laughs> he held out his hand, and for a moment speech failed him. Then he rose to the occasion. <laughs> Pleased to meet you, said Mr. Burt. That's the end? La fine. La fine. <laughs> so they found the plans. They found the plans, I guess? Military. Well, they were in the... They were in, they the, were in the, the cat. Yeah. Kitty. <laughs> so that was like an international incident. That doesn't yeah. happen much. That was a very... Uh, there, there was, we had Belgium, mm -hmm. England, and America, 
and the Japanese and like the Italians. Yeah, all over the place. <laughs> There's a lot happening, and that was 20 years before World War II. Yeah. All right. All right, Agatha Christie. I'm starting to feel a little bit personally attacked, though. Well, because once again, we've got this stage performer who is the the actual like mastermind criminal behind the whole thing. I'm starting to feel like Agatha might not have liked me very much. I feel like Agatha like like was like these people are so brilliant that they can like be mastermind criminals because everyone underestimates them. Maybe? Maybe I know, but. The second she had red hair, I knew shit was. You going. knew there was but, something, yeah. But it wasn't her. It was like it was her, the other redhead. It was her other twin. It was yeah, it was the redhead, but it wasn't like the very fast talking redhead. So I guess this time the the pretty redhead got to be both the the victim slash bait and the criminal and the criminal. I just like that Agatha Christie uh, uh, invokes invokes the love of the redhead. Yeah, whether they're the bad guy or not. Because they're usually badass women. Yeah. This was also, this was a much more um, uh, like, ninja-centric Poirot than, yeah. than we're used to seeing. Yeah, usually, I mean, that what, the last one we read, he was literally laying in bed. Well, With, he, like, like, recovering from the plague. Yeah, yeah like, well, he, like, he figured out the whole thing. Yeah. This time he's, like, kicking people and pouncing on them and, and ejaculating cats. <laughs> <laughs> That was fun. You know what was not mentioned in that story? What? His mustache. No, it wasn't. Hmm. I guess it's not always mentioned. But yeah, you're right. It was not brought up. Well, good thing we talked about good it beforehand. Good thing we talked about it beforehand. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was good. That was fun. That was a good one. I love, I love Poirot. Hey, um, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that Poirot mystery. Uh, another one from the great Agatha in whom we trust and put our faith. Yes. If you want to know more about us, head to our website, www.campfireclassicspodcast.com. And uh, we've just added a new page to it, actually. So you can uh, read along with us if you so choose. Uh, we've got a page that Ken's been working on where he's got the text for all the stories we have read in the past. And from now on, we will put those up. And you can read along while you listen, or you can read after, or you can read before, or you can say, fuck it, I just want to listen. Uh, you can do all that on that page. <laughs> um, and you can also uh, consider becoming a patron or buying us a cup of coffee. That's all on the thing. I won't bore you with that, but we would love your support. Um, most importantly, your most important potential support right now is just subscribing listening and telling friends that you think we're cool yeah <laughs> so uh yeah just uh pass it along tell your friends free entertainment uh, that's it uh so so thanks for listening hope you enjoyed this one we'll be back next week with another poirot mystery uh this yeah. has been campfire classics where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf it's Mustache November, it's Mustache November, we love you, Poirot, and we love you forever. <laughs>